All right. Good morning, everyone. We start a series going through the life of Moses, particularly the book of Exodus. And what I'd like to do today is sort of paint a picture of the setting, kind of lay and do the groundwork, kind of build up what we'll call the Exodus cinematic universe. Um, You guys know uh, Avengers uh, came out recently. It's the last one in a big list of like 57 movies. You can't just step into the last movie and understand the story. More importantly, you have to know the, the, the rules of that universe. And so they call all of those movies combined the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And that has rules and, and things that govern how those movies ought to, to function. And likewise, the book of Exodus has a sort of cinematic universe. And there's rules that you need to know uh, because the worldview of the people in the book of Exodus was a lot different than ours. So today is just an introduction and exposure to what we'll call that Exodus cinematic universe. Now, the book of Exodus begins in Egypt. And if you're familiar with the Bible, then you have to be asking yourself a question. Why in the world are we in Egypt? Exodus is the second book of the Bible, and the answer to that question is found in the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Genesis ends with a guy named Jacob, who is renamed Israel, he and his descendants are brought into Egypt. The reason is because of sin and famine. It's a big, long story that we don't have time to get into, but suffice to say, because of sin and famine, Jacob, and here's the wink by the author, who is renamed Israel, is finding himself in Egypt. Now, there's something you need to understand about the world at this time. People believed in what we'd call localized deities or territorial gods. Or to put it another way, there are gods that are associated with specific regions. So if you are in Egypt, there are a set of gods that live in the land of Egypt. But if you go to another region, there might be a different set of gods that rule in that place. So one of the questions that Exodus is trying to get you to ask and then answer is, Does the God of Israel have power in the land of Egypt? Who's in charge? Now, this is a difficult question because if you look around in Egypt, all you see is the might and power of Egypt, and the Egyptians, of course, give that glory to Pharaoh and to the gods that stand behind him. The Israelites have a different story. They don't believe in multiple gods like the Egyptians. They have a different worldview. Their their idea, their story is this. There is one good creator God, who created all things. And he made a promise with their forefather named Abraham. And the promise has some very specific details. God is going to give to Abraham and his descendants a land, a a people. Those people are gonna form a great nation and the descendants of this nation and people are gonna outnumber the stars. They're gonna be fruitful and multiply. So the question goes, is this God, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, in Egypt? Does he go there? Does he live there? Is the one true God of the world, the story of Israel, is that the actual real story? Is that the true reality of the universe? Now, you got to put yourself in those people's shoes. If you're in Egypt, and let's say you've been a slave there for a couple hundred years, the question you're asking is, yeah, where is my God? Where is he? It sure looks like the Egyptian gods are powerful. And look at the land of Egypt. It's beautiful. It looks like the gods of Egypt bless it. We're Israelites. We're slaves. We're in bondage. 
We're in oppression. Where is our God? Now, the book of Ezekiel, chapter 20, tells us this, that Israel, ethnic Israel, they went down into Egypt for sin and famine, because of sin and famine, but eventually they grow comfortable there. And Ezekiel tells us, says, as they stay there, they actually begin to lust after and worship the gods of Egypt. You know, we don't often think of this because primarily where we get our knowledge of the book of Exodus is from that movie that comes on right before Easter every year, The Ten Commandments, you know, Charlton Heston, let my people go. And in that, like, Israel is mostly faithful in their slavery. But Ezekiel tells a different story. Ezekiel tells us that as the Israelites stayed in Egypt, they got comfortable and they began to lust after and worship the gods of Egypt. This act was strictly forbidden in the Israelite story. The Israelite story is there's only one true God. And when Israel is being obedient in the Bible, they are in Israel. You get that? When ethnic Israel is being obedient in the Old Testament, they are in Israel worshiping the one true creator God, and they are being fruitful and multiplying. But Exodus begins with them in Egypt, and Ezekiel tells us they begin to get comfortable and worship the gods of Egypt. Exodus says, in this time, the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them, which is the author's way of sort of again winking at you and trying to get you to see something. Israel is in Egypt being disobedient. But God made a promise to Abraham that his descendants would outnumber the stars. So even in Egypt, in the midst of Israel's disobedience, God is still being faithful to his promise. Sort of the author's just quick little wink to the reader. Pharaoh says, however, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Israel's multiplying like crazy. The Egyptian empire, the Pharaoh, sees their multiplication as a threat. We've got to have some type of form to control this, some type of thing to control this, this outgrowing of population. And so they begin to oppress them and enslave them. And then this funny line. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. That's kind of funny. It's sort of like, you know, they take away all the good stuff that the Israelites have. They make them slaves, make them do backbreaking labor. All the stuff you know in life gets robbed from you. So what are you going to do? Still got one thing you could do. (laughs) Be fruitful and multiply, the first command in the scriptures. So the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Now again, go back to the competing stories. Egypt has a story. Pharaoh is king The gods of Egypt are powerfully behind him. How do you know the gods of Egypt are real and powerful? Look around. We are the best. We have the best architecture, the best agriculture, the best everything, the best military. That means our gods are powerful. If you're an Israelite, what is your story now that you've been a slave? Or where our God is the one true God. 
And he's the only true God, and he controls everything. He's the most powerful. The Egyptian says you, look around, man. You're a slave. You're nothing. We own you. Your God isn't real. If he is real, he's over in Israel. He has no power in Egypt. Now, there's something absolutely critical to, to understanding the cinematic universe, if you will. The Egyptian story of their gods is told all across their empire. Egypt is known for this. There's temples, monuments, statues. Everywhere you look, there are these things like this that communicate something to the people. You can't escape it. It retells the story of the power of the Egyptian gods again and again and again and again. In this picture, you see the statue of the ram, and this ram is a depiction of Amnu-Ra, Amnu-Ra is the chief god of the Egyptian pantheon. So the Egyptians have multiple gods and goddesses, tons of them, hundreds of them. But the top dog, the chief, the head of the pantheon of all these gods and goddesses is Amnu-Ra. And Amnu-Ra here is depicted as the mighty ram. Now there's something underneath him though. It's an image of Pharaoh. It's an image of Pharaoh. What the Egyptian... So want you to see is that Pharaoh is intricately bound up with the person and work of Amnu-Ra. Pharaoh, according to the Egyptians, was the image of God. In the story of the Bible, who's the image of God? All human beings, right? For Egyptians, the image of God is the Pharaoh. Additionally, Pharaoh is said to be the mouthpiece of God. And when they make these designs, they communicate this crystal clear. When you see Pharaoh, you see Amnu-Ra. Pharaoh is the executor of the will of the gods. Now, this is just one example, but the Egyptians, they don't mess around. So they don't just put like one of these statues up. They're going to build a temple, and then leading up to the temple, the roads are going to be lined with these things. Sometimes there are hundreds, sometimes there are thousands So there are thousands of images that communicate to the people, Pharaoh is the very image of God. When you see Pharaoh, you're seeing Amnura. Additionally, the Egyptians had sacred architecture, and we don't do sacred architecture anymore. What I mean by that is, all of their designs, all of their buildings, all of the architectural work communicated something. It was supposed to communicate something, and that something was usually tied up with the religion. We don't do that. Like, so this building, I wish there was something cool where I could say, like, actually, the angles of this room all up add up to this, or, you know, when we built this, we put in three steps for the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Like, we just, modern people don't do this type of sacred architecture. Ancient people did, and the Egyptians were no different. So this is a piece that is leading to a temple in Egypt, Karnak specifically, and this is called a pylon, P-Y-L-O-N. And a pylon is, sent, is, is, is supposed to mirror the Egyptian hieroglyphic, Achet. And Achet is the Egyptian hieroglyphic for horizon. And if you were to see the hieroglyphic, it would look like two hills or mountains with the sun rising between the two. So as you look at that, you can kind of see those are supposed to be those two pillars on each side are, are two mountains, and in the center is empty space. That's the horizon, and that would look exactly like the Egyptian hieroglyphic for horizon. 
Now, they would build these pylons in the general direction of the rising of the sun or the setting of the sun. Now, the sun doesn't stay, it doesn't rise at the exact same point every single day that there's movement, but it's in the general direction of where the sun would rise or where the sun would set. And if you know Egyptian architecture, there's always cool stuff where like two times a year on the equinox, the sun rises perfectly in the empty space between the two mountains. So that's what these things did. But what's it trying to communicate? The idea is this, that what takes place in the temple is that which is responsible for the sun rising and the sun setting. If you were to go into any, an Egyptian temple, it would be decorated in a way that communicated to the person inside that you are entering a mini cosmos. It's like the whole universe is, is in a miniature way contained in this temple. So that which is done in the mini cosmos in the temple is responsible for the things on the outside doing what they're supposed to do. In other words, if you do the temple ritual right, the sun will continue to rise and set. There's an important concept in Egyptian thought, and it's this idea that there is chaos about to break into the order. Chaos is out there, and that when the temple is done in proper order, that order is then transferred over into the chaos. Additionally, and probably most importantly, on these pylons, 90% of the time, maybe 95% of the time, wherever they appear, there's images upon them. What is engraved in the pylons? It's usually the image of Pharaoh slaying his enemies. And for modern people, it's very difficult for us to connect the dots because we don't have this worldview, but something is being communicated in powerful, dramatic fashion. The idea is this, Pharaoh is the mouth of God, he is the image of God. As he rules and reigns in Egypt, and as his priests perform the correct rituals in the temples, they are bringing order to the cosmos. Pharaoh is directly responsible by the hands of the God for the raising of the sun and the setting of the sun. Now, if you're an Egyptian and you look around, you go, yeah, that makes sense. You know, how does that make sense? Look at Egypt. We're the best. All these other people have weak gods, weak kings, weak leaders. Our gods bless us. We're the superpower. So Pharaoh, you just keep doing what you're doing. You keep the cosmos in order. You keep everything going. You help the sun rise and help it set. This is incredibly important for what takes place later in the book of Exodus. What's about to happen in the book of Exodus? Plagues. And what are the plagues doing? They are bringing chaos to the natural order of Egypt. It's frogs, the river turns to blood, there's bugs, lightning, fire, all this crazy stuff. And Pharaoh, the one who brings order to chaos, cannot bring order to that chaos or calamity. He's unable to, to do it, which is saying something. There's a message that's being delivered in the plagues that's not just let my people go. There's another message, an even more powerful message than just let my people go. So then Pharaoh sees the multiplication of the people of Israel in their bondage and gives this horrific command. 
Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now you ever wonder, how could the people just go along with this? How could the people just go, oh yeah, we're, we're going to follow the commands. I mean, some people rebelled, but again, most of the time Pharaoh says something, people do. You're going, how could you do that? Because you're not just obeying Pharaoh. You are obeying the gods. Pharaoh is the image and the mouthpiece of the gods. So to be disobedient to Pharaoh is to be disobedient to the divine. Secondly, oftentimes we like to pride ourselves on our own moral fortitude, like in a difficult time we would do the right thing. Human history tells a different story. When it's do something evil or die, most people's moral fortitude disappears pretty quickly. And you could just look at history and genocides to see that story play out again and again. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that she was and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him 3 months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dabbed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river. Now, two quick interesting thoughts. Moses' parents aren't named here. These are Moses' mom and dad. They have a child. We don't get their names. We don't know much about them. Later in the book of Exodus, we get their names. Amra and Yahavad. And their names mean exalted people and give glory to God. So, what type of person is going to be a slave and name their kid? We are the exalted people. Ezekiel tells us that the majority of Israelites were disobedient. They worshiped the gods of Egypt. But we always know that God, God keeps a righteous remnant. And it's possible that Moses' grandparents were a part of this righteous remnant. And when they named Moses' parents, they named them good godly names. You will be an exalted people. We will give God glory. We don't know, that's just speculation. But it could be that Moses had a praying mom, a praying father, praying grandparents. The other interesting note is the text says that Moses' mother puts the baby into a basket. And she puts him in a basket, but the Hebrew word that's used here is teva, and it doesn't mean basket. Because yes, Moses puts the baby in a basket, but the text wants you to see something more important than just what's the type of container the baby's placed in. The Hebrew word teva is the Hebrew word ark. Ark. Now, what did we say about Pharaoh a minute ago? Pharaoh brings order out of chaos. Pharaoh keeps the chaos at bay. Chaos, uh, Pharaoh makes the sun rise and the sun set. Now combine that with this thought. When was the last time we saw an ark in our story? The flood. Noah. And what took place there? The waters of chaos were unleashed upon creation, and a remnant, a righteous remnant, is given salvation in the ark. And what happens? The ark is surrounded by the chaotic waters of death. And there's death and chaos surrounding the ark of salvation in which the remnant is preserved. So, when Pharaoh gives a decree of death, what does the story do? It has the mother putting the baby not just in a basket, but in an ark. 
an ark that will bring salvation to a righteous remnant, even though the chaotic waters of death are encircling. So this is the way the author is winking at you again. Yes, it's a basket, but it's more than a basket. It's an ark. Now we've got to slow down here. Because oftentimes we'll read texts like this, and we'll just go to the next, next passage. And you've got to stop for a second and take it in and picture the mother. What type of desperate situation do you have to be in to put your baby into the crocodile-filled Nile River? And if you have, a, you have a kid, you have a child, you know you lay down your life for your child like that. And it's not even like because you're righteous, not because I'm such a good person, I'm such a good mom and dad, I'd lay... No, it's like wired into you. It's like your instinct. I don't even have to think about it. Who dies, my kid or me? Me, kill me. No questions asked. Simple. But this mother is brought into such a desperate situation where she puts her child in a basket in the Nile River. Now, the text tells us this mother was with that baby for three months. So for three months, this mother held that baby, kissed that baby. She knew the little noises and the the little faces he would make. This mom probably sang the songs and lullabies of her people to this baby, possibly prayed for this baby. God, protect my son. Please don't let Pharaoh find this baby. Protect my son. Protect my son, Lord. She loved him. She squeezed him. She cuddled him. She nursed him. And now she's at a place of such desperation, she's going to send him down the Nile in a basket. Now you can imagine all the thoughts that are going through her head, right? And this is why the, the rules of the universe are important, the cinematic universe. She's a slave. Her father was a slave. Her father's father were a slave. Her people are in bondage. There's some stories that Maybe there's this one true good creator God who made some promises to her great-great-great-grandfather, but you know what? He hasn't been around for a long time. And all I see is the might and power of Egypt. I see the power of the gods of Egypt. And maybe she starts to pray to this God, but then you know how it is. You start telling yourself things. You start hearing things like, man, you're, you're just a slave. There's, there's no God who looks over you. You're a slave. You'll always be a slave. Your, your God is not even real, and if he is real, he's in Israel. There's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He has no power here. This is Egypt. You're a slave. You always will be a slave. You're nothing. You're no one. And then you imagine that young mother finding just enough strength, just enough backbone to march that baby down to the river. Oh, please, God, please, God, save this baby. Save my baby. Save this and release him. And at this point in the story, you should be asking, where is God in all of this? Where is God? Where is he? His people are slaves. They suffer. They are afflicted. Children are dying. A mom in desperation puts her baby to the river. Where is God in all of this? And if you're asking that question, you're doing exactly what the book of Exodus wants you to do. 
because we feel that on an emotional level, but you should also feel that on the textual level or the narrative level. For the first two chapters so far in the book of Exodus, God is not mentioned. God is nowhere to be found. Maybe God is in Israel. He's not in Egypt. Maybe there is no God of Israel. God is nowhere to be found. God is not mentioned. All you have is death and suffering and affliction and it climaxes in a desperate mother handing over her baby to the water. Where is God? And then the first glimmer of hope or good news. After the baby goes to the Nile, now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young woman walked besides the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrew children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew woman to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. Okay, follow this. God is nowhere to be found. God is not mentioned. There's the theological question of, is God even powerful in Egypt? And then what happens? The desperate mother throws her baby into the water, into the basket, into the water. And somehow, the child is saved by this ark, taken in by royalty, and then what does the royalty do? Find someone to nurse this baby. And who do they get to nurse it? The mother. Now see what's going on. Exodus is doing something to you. It appears that God is nowhere to be found. But yet, in the middle of darkness and trial and tribulation, in the middle of death, in the heart of Egypt, it appears as if the invisible hand of the sovereign God is working behind the scenes to bring about his purposes and make them come to fruition. It's like God is nowhere to be found. Maybe not. Maybe not. Now, this is where the story does one of those things in the movies where it flash forward like 20 years. So it's right after this, you get Pharaoh being, uh, uh, Moses being saved, and he's going to be raised sort of as an Egyptian, but he still knows his ethnic Hebrew heritage, and it flash forwards, and now Moses has grown up. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Okay, so Moses is grown up now, and he sees someone in affliction, sees someone in pain, and he acts. Now, the Bible looks down upon Moses' action, but it sort of looks good upon the intention. You know, the intention, don't let someone suffer. Save the slave. Mm, probably shouldn't have murdered someone. So good heart, good intention, bad execution at the end of the day. But you get a glimpse of the heart of Moses here. And this is a theme that will run throughout his life. Moses isn't perfect. He's a sinful man. But when he sees the hurting, when he sees the afflicted, he does something. 
he does something. So in this case, Hebrew slaves getting beaten, he saves them. In another instance, you'll see that there's some men uh, attacking some, uh, some women at a well. Moses steps in and saves them. In another instance later on, God is so mad at Israel, God says, I'm going to take them all out. And Moses says, God, kill me and spare them. Now, by the way, someone saying, kill me and spare them. Does that sound familiar? So you get glimpses at the character of Moses, and in that, you're also getting glimpses at the character of God. God is one who sees the hurt, the pain, and the affliction, and does something. Now, after Moses kills this guy, he has to flee, because even though he was raised um, sort of with the Egyptians and adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, all of that doesn't matter. He's still ethnically a Hebrew. And so if an ethnic Hebrew kills an Egyptian, he's going to die. So he flees, and he goes to a land called Midian. And in Midian, he gets married to a woman named Sipporah. He has a kid. And it seems like Moses is living a good life. Like by ancient standards, married, got kids, got food. Cool. Good to go. And the story in Exodus puts the spotlight on Moses. And you're going, like, good for Moses, man. He made it out, man. He grew up in some tough times. He made, did all right for himself. And then all of a sudden, though, then the spotlight goes back to the people. Yeah, yeah, Moses is doing okay, but where's Israel? They're still in slavery. <coughs> During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Now that might not stand out to many of us, but remember the world. Where is Israel? They are in Egypt crying out, yet the God of Israel still hears them. The God of Israel hears his children in Egypt crying out. More importantly, his children may not even be faithful anymore. Again, Ezekiel says pretty much everyone started worshiping the false gods. And in this, it just says they cry out. It doesn't say they pray to the God of Abraham. Moses, in a bit, will appear like he doesn't even know his name in the burning bush event. So we don't even know if they're crying out to God. They just may be crying out, saying, our life is miserable. And they're doing that in Egypt as unfaithful children. And yet the God of Israel hears their cries and he is going to act on their behalf. Now, how is he going to act on their behalf? He is going to raise up Moses. And we're going to get into the call of Moses in the burning bush scene next week. But God calls Moses. And what is Moses to do? Moses is to march down into Egypt and climactically confront Pharaoh. And the book of Exodus is a story and there's a story of Pharaoh versus Moses. But you have to understand, it's much more than a story of Pharaoh versus Moses. Remember the rules of the universe. Pharaoh is standing in place of somebody. Moses is standing in place of somebody. It isn't just Pharaoh versus Moses. Pharaoh is the image of Amnurah. Pharaoh is the image of the gods. He is the embodiment of the will of the Egyptian pantheon. Who does Moses represent? 
the God who claims to be a God over a land about this big. In other words, this is a story about the one God of Israel marching down to Egypt to do battle with the entire Egyptian pantheon. The one God of Israel versus all the power and might of all the gods of Egypt. That's not just me sort of building this up like it's gods fighting gods. This is the word of the God of Israel himself. Exodus 12, 11, 12. On all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. This is a battle of the gods. Now, some of you might be wrestling with a couple things. Because here's the question. Is it really? Is, it, is God really going to go fight Egyptian gods? And so some of you want to go, mm, no. Yeah, no. Yes. Are there other gods? There's only one God, right? The Bible says again and again, there's only one God. There's only one true God. All other gods are false gods, right? You know, there's verses where it says, oh, you know, when you went down and worshiped that idol, you know that that idol was just stone or wood, but there, there was no real God in, in that idol. There's no such thing as other gods. There's only one God. But then other times you have verses like this. And then other times you have verses that say something along the lines of, oh, you know when you went down and sacrificed to that stone statue? You weren't sacrificing to an idol. You were sacrificing to a demon. What? And so it's really weird, but all throughout the Bible, when you talk about this type of stuff, sometimes it will use personal and impersonal terms. See, when we think of false gods, we, we abstract that idea out of the original concept. So we think of the false god of money. You know, if, when churches do series on idolatry, they're going to talk about money and greed and violence and say, you know, your idol is, is vanity or something. And that's true, fine, because you can abstract that. But when the scriptures talk about it, sometimes... When they say a God, they talk about it in a personal way. Yahweh, the God of Israel, is going to march down, and his reason is this, to execute judgment on the gods of Egypt. Are they real? Are they not? Are they demons? We'll get into that later. I'm not going to tell you anything what I think right now. But know this. Exodus wants you to see this as an epic, climactic battle of the God of a tiny people who occupies a tiny little place, piece of land on the map versus the greatest superpower on the face of the earth. And the question is, who will prove to be most powerful? That is the introduction to the world of Exodus and what we're going to be diving into for the next several weeks. But out of that introduction, there's there's a message for pretty much every single person in this room, almost everybody. Um, But the message will manifest in two different ways because there's two categories of people in this room. And so I want to talk to one group of people first and then another group of people second. The message of the first couple chapters of the book of Exodus is this. When it appears that God is nowhere to be found, don't you doubt it. God's sovereign hand is moving. In Egypt, in darkness, in chaos, in murder, 
when God's people are in slavery and they've been in slavery for hundreds of years, God is still moving and he's being faithful to his promises. So there are some of you here who need to hear that message. I, I say this often, but as a pastor, I know the hurt and the pain and the suffering in this room. That is real. And you've been crying out to God. You've been asking for deliverance. God, save me. God, deliver me from this. Deliver me from my enemies here. Take me out of this storm, this trial here. And you've been praying it and praying it, and it feels as if God is nowhere to be found, like he's not answering your prayers. The message of Exodus says this. Even if you are in slavery in Egypt, God is closer to you and more near to you than the air you breathe. He hears your cries. He knows you. He loves you. He knows your name. He knows the hairs on your head. He cannot hold you any tighter than he is. You may not feel that. Feel that. The circumstances may say otherwise, but you know with certainty, and you know that deep in your bones and in your soul, in your spirit, my God is near and he hears my cry. Now make no mistake about it. Some of the Israelites died in slavery. So it's not a message that says, God hears your cries and all of your problems are going to go away. Sometimes you die in slavery. Sometimes you are delivered from slavery. But every follower of God is ultimately delivered from the greatest of all slaveries. It may not come in this life, but it will come in the next. You will see your deliverer and he will give you salvation. So if you doubt that, if you feel like you're in the dark, like God is not near, you do not know how close God is to you in this very moment. Every molecule in your being is being upheld by the sovereign hand of God in this very moment. You are in his hands. Nothing can take you out of that. Now, I want to draw a hard line to distinguish the two groups of people. Because the other group of people in this room need to hear this message, but it's going it's to manifest differently. And I want to ask for grace. Be gracious to me in how I present this. I want to present it in much love as I can. Um, but it's, e- it's, it's one of those things that you could easily take up an offense for. So be gracious with me. Some people need to be reminded that God hears your cries. But then there's another group of people. And, and this is reflected, by the way, in so much of the worship music that's coming out and a lot of Christian publication. We have tons of books in the Christian world and tons of songs that are being written in the Christian world, and they all focus, not all of them, but a big chunk of them, a big chunk of them, focus on the fact that you're in a storm, you're in a trial, God is coming to deliver you from your enemies, he's gonna conquer your battles and give you victory. Every big new worship song that comes out, it's like, that's the theme again. Here's another Christian bestseller, that's the theme. Finding peace in the midst of all your anxieties and stress. And trust me, there's some of you who need that, and all of us at some point in our lives need that. There's a reason and a purpose for those. We sing those songs and we read those books. There's a time and a place for that. However, there's a mentality that's developed and it's being reinforced by our corporate worship and our publications and our books. And we have a lot of Christians who have 
really good lives going around acting like their life is miserable and how they need God to deliver them from their enemies and give me victory. and, and, And I'm going, you don't have any battles. You live an incredible blessed life in a country that has afforded you the greatest standard of living ever conceived. And all you do is talk about how you need more victory. You're not oppressed. You're not afflicted. You're not. There's people in this room, and if you're like me, you live a truly blessed life. I am blessed. My biggest problems are this big. What many of you worry about, it's this big, man. It's this big. And get, don't hear me. There's people who are wrestling with really horrific stuff in this room right now. But for many of you, if you're like me, you're living a good life. And so you're wondering, oh God, do you hear the cries? Do you hear my cries? And I'm saying, yeah, God hears your cries and he wants to tell you to stop whining. He's heard it. Stop complaining. Christians are joy-filled people. The will of God in Christ is that you would be grateful. And so the question for you is not, does God hear your cries? It's like, Of course he does. But you're not oppressed, you're not afflicted. So for you, the question is, do you hear the cries of the afflicted? Because you live the good life. We're not slaves in Egypt. Most of us have great lives. And the question is, are we listening? Are we listening? Because if you listen, it's everywhere. There is so much suffering so much evil in this world. Do you listen to hear the cry of the single mother who's working three jobs and is still living in poverty? Are you listening? And are you like Moses? Are you going to do something? Are you listening for those people who are in hospice care on their last days? Are you listening? Do you hear the cries of those who suffer with extreme, immense depression? Do you hear the cries of the unborn? Or do you plug your ears? We're not a a perfect church by any means. Every church has tons of problems, dysfunctional. It's just like a family, you know what I mean? It's like there's problems. Even the best families are dysfunctional. You all got the crazy uncle that everyone just deals with, but he's dysfunctional. But, you know, we love Greg anyway. He's a good campus pastor. Good campus pastor. We love him anyway, man. A little crazy. So we don't do a lot of things right because no church is perfect, but one of the things I am proud of our church, and we, we got to continue to do better at this because you, you never arrive, but we want to hear the cries of those hurting. Uh, we partnered a while back, like two years ago, and this is just, just a story of, of why I'm proud of this, this church. Is, um, we partnered with a ministry called Foster the Bay, and Foster the Bay's goal was to basically put every child in need of a foster family in a loving foster family. And they did the math, and basically if every single church in the Bay Area would produce one foster family, all the children in the foster system would have a home. So it's crazy. That's how they started their mission. And I don't know how we heard about them, but they came and did a presentation, and, and they started talking to us and telling us stories of Little kids, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Children, little kids uh, being in such horrific situations that they get taken away from mom and dad. Or in some situations, mom or dad has died or both or one. And you start to picture like a little two, three, four-year-old kid 
It's like, you get taken from your home. You're not near your mom and dad. No one to, to, to kiss you on the forehead, tuck you in, and, and tell that child when they go to sleep, you matter, you're loved, you're precious. And then they start talking about the stats of how kids who are in and out of the foster care system, statistically, they're more likely to be involved in gang activity, criminal activity, suffer with depression, uh, more likely to commit suicide. They talk about all the things they wrestle with, how most of our prisons are disproportionately filled with people who have been in and out of the foster care system. And they talk about how they're the most vulnerable, so they're the most likely to be physically and sexually abused. And after they make their presentation, it's like, well, does your church want to partner with us? And the reason why I was so proud of our church is just the entire staff is like, we don't even have to think about it. The staff was basically said, if, if we don't help in this situation, don't call us a church. Don't even call us a church. You can call us a club. We'll be a Christian club. If you can hear those types of cries and those people are in your community and you're not doing something, you don't have the heart of Moses, you don't have the heart of the Father in this, man, we're not a church. We're, we're just a club that sings songs and studies the Bible together. And so some of you today need to be reminded that God hears your cries. And some of you need to be challenged and asked, are you listening for the cries of the truly afflicted? Because you're blessed. The ushers are going to pass out communion. And this is where that one message resonates with all of us who who are a Christian because the story of the Exodus mirrors the story every follower of Jesus has. You were not a slave in Egypt, but you were a slave to Satan's sin and death, and you had no hope. But God sent a deliverer. God sent Moses to to save Israel from the Egyptian bondage, and then God sent another deliverer. God came in the person and work of his son, Jesus, to do battle against the God of this world. And at the cross, he defeats Satan's sin and death. And what that means for you is that you are no longer a slave, you are not forsaken, you are not abandoned. You have been adopted into the family of God. You have not been neglected, you have been chosen. God has brought you to his table, invited you in. And then what God does is he goes, okay kids, my son, my daughter, you've been saved. You've received grace. Now go out into the world with my good news. Listen for the cries of the afflicted. Listen for the oppressed. Do something about it. Spread the good news of Jesus. Tell the world of the work of my son. And so no matter where you're at, whether you're in group one or group two, the message for all of us today is this. You were a slave to sin. God saved you. He gave you grace when you were undeserving. He showered you immensely with love and grace. He's adopted you, has brought you in, and now says, go out into the world. The gospel changes us, and then God puts us on his mission. If you are a Christian, a follower of Jesus today, uh, one of the things we do every Sunday is take communion. And as we do this out of reverence, we stand.
Jesus says, this is my body broken for you. When God defeated the greatest of enemies, the power he displayed was not with plague or destruction. It was in the breaking of his own body on your behalf. If ever you doubt the love of God, you remember the bread and what it stands for. Jesus takes the cup and says, this is my blood. It's the blood of the new covenant. As we take it, 